You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. Well, welcome back to Stephanomics and these mini episodes, giving you a taste of the conversations here at the New Economy Forum in Singapore. And today uh, I wanted to have a conversation with Kendra Schaefer, who has um, a really interesting um, perspective on current debates about the future of China and the future of US-China relations as the head of tech policy research at a Beijing-based uh, policy consultancy, Trivium. Um, Kendra uh, start by explaining a little about you because you're just your own sort of recent personal history is, is kind of interesting. You were based in Beijing until very recently. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me. So I just left Beijing a couple of months ago. I actually went to college in Beijing uh, in 2002. I kind of intended to just stay there, uh, you know, for a year and then go back. I was a, a nerd kid. I started my career as a developer, actually. Uh, and then I've just been there for the last 20 years and my my career kind of went from, you know, I was there right at the beginning of the internet boom and my career went from development to, to tech policy research in a bizarre series of twists and turns. Uh, uh, so yeah, I've been there for for most of uh, the COVID outbreak and uh, just, just kind of stepped out. And you must have had this sort of interesting phenomena recently where those people who have managed, you know, the academics and, and China experts who've been able to be in China recently for one reason or another, they're so rare, they get sort of mobbed by people um, for the kind of more recent take on, on, on things in China. Have, has that been your experience this week and in the, in the last few weeks? Yeah, it absolutely has. I mean, that's been, you know, exacerbated by US-China tensions, but it's also been exacerbated by a kind of exodus of China experts from uh, China during the, the COVID pandemic. Um, and so nobody has been able to really get back. I mean, uh, US-China travel cross-border dialogue has really taken a nosedive in the last couple of years. So yeah, there's a lot of interest in what it's really like on the ground over there, particularly since, you know, China's kind of gone off on on this, you know, other timeline with COVID than the rest of the world. So people are very interested in in what's happening. And you are day to day, of course, also observing what's happening in the in the tech policy space and giving kind of daily up to you and your team, I imagine, are, are updating your clients and talking to people on a regular regular basis. Um, how is your how is your business done over the last few years, I guess is one way of putting it. Um, well, yeah. So basically what we do is, you know, my tech team spends all day digging around in, in Chinese tech policy documents and kind of trying to explain 
Beijing's motivations for, you know, some of the things that have happened, particularly in the last couple of years. And so business is booming. Uh, it's never a dull day, especially considering we've seen, you know, the 20th Party Congress, we've seen the tech crackdown, we've seen, you know, all of these companies kind of get hit fire hosed with new regulations coming out of Beijing. We've seen, you know, censorship increase. So there's just been a lot of uh, a lot of things to follow. And there's been significant interest in those things. And and you were saying to me that, uh, you know, one of the distinguishing features of the consultancy is everybody there reads at least one big pile of very boring policy documents every morning when it comes out. Yes. So we spend, you know, I mean, we spend a couple hours a day just digging through the latest releases from the various government agencies, but not just that. Also, you know, blogs from, you know, policy advisors and, uh, you know, other kind of micro moves from from Chinese think tanks and that kind of stuff to really kind of get a sense of these these little steps forward. Whereas the media tends to focus on the big headlines, right? Big, big new movements. We kind of track what's happened after those issues are not headlines anymore. But a lot of people listening to this podcast, I imagine they're kind of fairly interested, I hope they're fairly interested in the global economy, um, but they're maybe not uh, focused necessarily on what's happening in, in business or tech policy uh, at any given time. When we hear that headline, you know, the tech crackdown, what do you think has actually been going on uh, over the last couple of years with what we consider to be the tech crackdown in China? Yeah, I mean, that's a fascinating topic. Um, it's pretty much all anybody wanted to hear about last year, right? And because I think it surprised so many investors. Um, but to be perfectly frank, it probably shouldn't have. Uh, ultimately, what is there was a lot of things going on. Number one, for the last 15 years, really, maybe 20 years since China's big tech companies really started to develop, um, you know, the state has struggled with figuring out where big tech fits into the socialist market economy, right? I mean, when you really think about it, it's fascinating because big tech company, the emergence of big tech companies is the first time that Beijing has ever had to deal with big private domestic firms that are not state-owned enterprises, right? And so the state has kind of not really known what to do with big tech in that regard. Uh, and for the first 15 years of tech company development, uh, to be perfectly frank, tech firms were very dismissive of regulators. And you have a similar issue in the States, right? They kind of brushed off a lot of regulatory authority and pressure. We kind of conceptualize that as the central government came after big tech. It's not really what happened. You know, you basically had a multitude of regulators going after you know, concerned about a multitude of issues in the tech space. So that included things like the central bank was worried that fintech platforms were being regulated like tech companies and not like banks, but they were basically behaving like banks or at least by like financial institutions. Um, you know, you, you had uh, transport regulators and market regulators concerned about low levels of compliance, legal compliance in the ride hailing sector. You had the Ministry of Education concerned that ed tech companies were, you know, overcharging parents and kind of making it more expensive uh, to have kids in a time when the population is declining. And so all of these things have been bubbling under the surface for, you know, over a decade. Um, and then, you know, as the state's priorities and their vision for the future digital economy started to solidify under Xi Jinping's government, you know, there was this growing concern that the state needed to step in, that all these regulators needed to step in and put these tech companies, force them to get in line with state directed goals. 
And so there was kind of a green light signal from the central government that these regulators could now go after, you know, tech companies across this whole range of issues. And it just created a tidal wave of kind of pent up regulation (laughs) that all just crashed down on tech companies at the same time. Uh, And that's kind of what investors experienced last year. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. When we see, you know, the National Party Congress, obviously the takeaway that I think, you know, anyone who paid any attention at all um, had saw the headline, you know, Xi Jinping consolidating his power. That's raised question marks about um, whether policy going forward will be driven by kind of considerations of what's best for the economy or much more about what's best for Xi and what's best for um, for the for the government and its continued control. If when you look at uh, in technology, obviously a key part of China's future growth is going to be innovation in that sector. Does one see the same kind of concern that Xi's increasingly um, iron grip could start slowing China's innovation or getting in the way of its growth? Yeah, so the critical issue there uh, is really that the the state wants to encourage innovation, but innovation along the lines of state-directed goals, right? The idea is really become that tech companies, and particularly I'm talking about platform companies here, um, should be on board with leveraging their capital and directing their resources towards uh, solving what the Chinese government tends to call bottleneck or chokehold technologies, right? So the message is, listen, tech platforms, we don't want you guys disrupting pizza delivery or whatever it is you're doing. That's not helping the state. We want you to leverage your capital uh, to develop high-end chimps, which we're um, currently struggling to, China's currently struggling to develop that industry. We want you to leverage your capital towards AI towards, you know, certain elements of blockchain development. 
Um, and those are the goals that the state sees will help it develop its digital economy. Now, I should step back a little bit because one of the fascinating pieces of the digital economy, the way that the state has kind of framed it, is that the growth of the digital economy in China is, you know, many times faster than the growth of the, the the real economy. But their vision for the digital economy doesn't really include or, you know, platforms just kind of developing whatever they want, right? So that's really that's really the issue. They They want to put platform companies on a trellis and then have them develop on the trellis that the party has established. Does that make sense? Yeah, I mean, I think a lot of governments would look at that and say, yeah, of course, we'd like to have all the innovation all be in super valuable, useful things and not in these things that seem rather frivolous or distracting. You know, from your knowledge of the way innovators work, I mean, is how plausible is it that the government's just going to be able to encourage innovation in some areas and not others? No, I mean, I think that remains to be seen. You know, I think about the answer to that question, I'd be a bajillionaire. But, um, uh, you know, <laughs> what we have seen is a response from platform companies indicating at least nominally that they are trying to get on the boat. So we've seen platform companies go into chip design. We've seen platform companies go into, you know, AI. We've seen also seen a lot of moves uh, by platform companies to uh, create platforms that help solve other domestic problems. So for example, food security issues or rural revitalization, right? Kind of bringing jobs to the countryside to, to um, you know, increase wealth in the farming population. So uh, those are all state-directed uh, priorities. And just to be clear, sorry, when you say platform companies, what kind of companies are you? Tencent, Alibaba, Baidu, you know, right. this, you know, Didi. So, uh, you know, we've seen a lot of movements from those companies to to at least nominally follow that path. Uh, whether or not that results in innovation down those passes is a question mark. But I, you know, I think it's a little bit silly to say that state direction has not resulted in innovation in China. Um, you know, it, it has in many cases. Uh, and so there's, you know, there's a, there's a possibility that uh, that they do succeed. The other thing that you have a, a vantage point on that was obviously relevant to this is U.S.-China relations and how that's playing out on the ground. I mean, it, it feels on the outside as if there's an enormous tension at the moment between sort of the direction that politicians are moving in, um, whether it's what Congress people say about Taiwan or even what the administration says about wanting to prevent China from getting cutting edge chips and what businesses feel is realistic or desirable um, in the way of decoupling from China. You know, I hear it again and again, companies saying, well, we hear this, you know, we're thinking about, you know, diversifying some of our supply chains, but we're not pulling out of China. And we are, if anything, trying to, uh, you know, still continue to build our relationships there you're on the ground or you were until recently, but you're still talking to um, clients who are asking you for the latest in China. Have you seen any let up in the number of US or global companies who are um, investing in China and making long term plans for business in China? Well, I think you're I think you're spot on there. Um, what we're really seeing is that companies are in a holding pattern. Part of the reason is U.S.-China relations. That's half of it. But I actually think the bigger driver is China's zero COVID policies, because the zero COVID situation for tech manufacturing is just out of control. You know, you have factories that are are trying to produce hardware that are just getting caught up in lockdowns every two weeks and 
you know, I don't, I don't know if you've been following this like Foxconn issue in Zhengzhou. There was a COVID outbreak at the factory. Factory got locked down and most of the workers, and we're tracking this right now, most of the workers fled. They just went home. Right. And, and, and just, you know, they walked because no transportation would take them because they weren't supposed to be, you know, on public transport if they were, you know, under lockdown. Uh, People just picked up their bags and said, you know, forget this. And they, they walked back to their hometowns. Right. I mean, it's just been, it's been crazy, that kind of stuff, you know, and then there was issues at the, you know, Tesla factory in Shanghai. I mean, there's just been worker protests. And so, it's really more that issue that I think is the immediate threat. What we're hearing is that, you know, same thing you're hearing. Um, companies are looking to diversify outside of China to mitigate risk, both zero COVID and U.S.-China tension risk. Uh, they don't want to leave uh, because there are few options. And in some cases, they literally have no other choice because the supply chain in China is so mature for certain industries, shipbuilding, for example, um, that there's just nowhere else on on planet Earth they can go, you know, continue to do business at the same scale and continue to produce at the same scale. So they don't want to leave um, and are are concerned about being driven out, uh, but definitely are trying to hedge hedge that risk. But the other thing we're hearing is that in many cases, you know, a duplicate supply chain would require 10 years to build. In, in the cases of many of these companies. Mm. So you've just got, you know, people are just doing their best to, to, to hedge their bets, uh, but are largely still dependent on China. I guess finally, uh, people will be interested to know whether you have any plans to go back. I think you're, living, you're now uh, living in, in Portland, um, which must feel pretty different after all those years in, in Beijing. But, you know, if there was a, um, if you were presented with a sort of compelling reason to to go back to Beijing to live would you would you consider that or do you think or is it becoming a bit more difficult to be an American focused on China Chinese tech policy oh I'd absolutely go back uh given half a chance I mean I've got a big network of friends and obviously our our clients and and uh you know work friends over in Beijing and I and I still you know deeply love it there um but zero COVID has made it very difficult um to remain right when you can't get in and out of the country, especially when you travel as much as I do, it's a little bit difficult. So, I mean, my plans are just to wait and see what happens with zero COVID. Uh, as soon as the restrictions start to let up, I'll, I'll reassess. I've spoken to a number of people who do feel more vulnerable as U.S. citizens in China now. Just not that 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 they personally would be under threat, but that they could potentially be caught up in something larger or a diplomatic spat. But that's not something that concerns you particularly. Well, I mean, the issue essentially for for me is that, you know, I like to be right in the middle of the action, regardless of any of that stuff. Um, It's definitely the tensions on the ground have the the kind of feeling of of being there as American uh, has definitely changed. It's most certainly changed since I got there in, in 2004, when everyone was very excited to, you know, meet an American. And now, you know, they ask you where you're from and you say the U.S. and they go, mm hmm. And so, and so, but it, I think that's happening on both sides of the ocean, right? I mean, you essentially have a media environment, both in the US and China, that is kind of painting the other, you know, in the US, it's like China's this big evil authoritarian state and the kind of number one adversary of, of the US. And, you know, in China, you're hearing things like, 
you know, the U.S. is a hegemonic power that doesn't want to share with, you know, anybody else except people that believe as they believe. And so there's this kind of, you know, downward spiral of um, communication, miscommunication and, uh, you know, negative conversation about the other, uh, which is a very unfortunate situation to be in. And I have definitely felt that over there. But, you know, that said, on a day to day basis, people are people and and, uh, you know, that's true all over the world. Kendra Schaffer, thank you so much. Thank you. Well, that's it for this mini episode of Stephanomics from the New Economy Forum in Singapore. We will be back with more. But in the meantime, thanks to Yang Yang for producing this episode. Hi, I'm Ron Krzyzewski, Chairman and CEO of Stiefel. Financial advisors, let's face it, if you're not growing your practice, you're losing market share. Stiefel is a growing, entrepreneurial, advisor-centric firm built for successful advisors like you. There's a reason why 148 financial advisors joined Stiefel last year. Come join us and find out why Stiefel is the firm where success meets success. Visit www.choosestifel.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.